Modern Fairies and Loathly Ladies, Podcast Series 1. Episode 1, Introducing Fairies and Fairyland. Hello, I'm Caroline Larrington. And I'm Faye Heald. We have a project called Modern Fairies and Loathly Ladies, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. To get the project off the ground, Caroline has selected around 50 stories from among the traditional folk tales of the British Isles, which tell of fairies and the magical figures who appear in the forest as hideously ugly, but who, if treated appropriately, can turn into beautiful women. The project aims to find out how these tales can be made relevant today. We've passed the tales on to a group of musicians, artists, filmmakers, poets and writers to see what they make of them, how they remediate the different tales in different ways, or what aspects of the fairy material they identify with or they want to take up in their work. Another part of the project is finding out what audiences make of this new material as work in progress, and the audience's thoughts are fed back to the artists who might then change or modify what they've been doing. So the project is mainly about bringing fairies into the modern world and making new kinds of art with them. But it's also about tracing audience and artist responses to the stories and the works made out of them. The artist's work will be the focus of a second series of podcasts coming in late 2019. In this podcast series, we're exploring the tales that are inspiring the writers and musicians. The fairies of folklore and medieval tradition are not at all like the tiny flower fairies of children's tales, largely invented by Victorian tradition. They are human-sized, or only slightly smaller, and rather than being either good fairies or bad fairies, as we find in traditional fairy tales, they have their own agendas when they interact with humans. If you have dealings with a fairy, you need to follow their instructions closely, keep your promises and act with caution. And then you have a good chance of getting home safely and keeping your fairy games. If not, terrible things can happen, as we'll be finding out. In this first podcast, we're going to talk about some stories that introduce the world of the fairies and its difference from our own world. Though it's a land that's hard to access if you want to go there, there are ways of finding your way in. And it's also quite common for you to find yourself snatched or taken by the fairies for their own reasons. Later in the series, we'll be talking about how the fairies take an erotic interest in men and women or steal human children. But here are some stories about the perils and delights of fairyland, about fairy dances, fairy treasure and bewitching fairy palaces. Here's Brian McMahon summarising and then reading an extract from The Medieval Romance of Sir Orfeo. Sir Orfeo is a medieval romance recorded in a manuscript from the early 14th century. It retells the classical myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, but with the twist that the wife is stolen away by the fairies. Queen Eurydice goes to sleep one afternoon in her orchard under an impa tree, a grafted tree. The king of the fairies appears to her and commands her to return there next day to go away with him or risk being torn limb from limb. Distraught, Hyrdidis tells her husband, King Orfeo, what has happened. 
The next day, she returns to the tree. Although she is surrounded by her husband's soldiers, she is still whisked away out of their sight. Orfeo puts his steward in charge of the kingdom and wanders away with his harp out into the wilderness. Here he waits, playing his harp to the birds and beasts. Occasionally, he hears the fairy hunt in the distance. At last, after many years of patience, he sees the hunt and his queen among the riders, and he follows them back to fairyland. And this is how the Middle English describes it. In it a roch the levedis rideth, and he after, and nought abideth. When he was in the roch he go, well three mile other mo, he come into a fair country, as bright so sun on summer's day, smooth and plain and all green, hill no dale nas there none seen. Amid the longer castle he sigh, richer and real and wonder high, all the utmost wall was clear and shine as crystal. Within there were wider warners, all of precious stones. The worst pillar on to behold was all of burnished gold. All that land was ever light, for when it should be therk and night, the rich stone's light gone as bright as doth at noon the sun. No man may tell, no thench in thought, the rich work that there was wrought. By all thing him think that it is the proud court of paradise. Orfeo sees in the outer courtyard people frozen in the postures in which they were when the fairies took them, some drowned, some burned, some in childbirth, some gone mad, and his lady asleep under the trees. He enters the king's hall and plays beautifully for the king and queen. As a reward, the king offers him anything he would like, and he asks for Hyrdis. At first the king wants to refuse, she is so lovely and he is so dishevelled, but Orfeo reminds him that a king must keep his promises, and he and his lady return to their kingdom, where the steward is delighted to see that his master has returned with his beloved wife once more. And now we're going to hear Faye and her band playing a version of Sir Orfeo that Faye adapted herself based on a translation of the medieval romance made by J.R.R. Tolkien. Tree. 
all blossom and bloom in my own country. Sir Alfio is a hunting gone down in the woods so green. A picking flowers and berries so sweet to take on to his queen. And as the sun was setting low to the garden, he's come home. And calling for his own true love, but true love he found none. Searching high, searching low for fifty days went he until. In the bonny apple tree, all blossom and bloom in my own country. Sir Orfeo is a wandering, gone down in the woods so green, a weeping long and weeping sore for his poor lost stolen queen. No costly robes upon his back, no signs of wealth or pride, no good rags and leather bags. About his feet. His nails are grown like ravens, claws his hair like knotted out. For years he wept and sang his song, but not one word he spoke. The oak and the ash and the bonny apple tree all blossom and bloom in my own country. So, in the tale of Sir Orfeo. Eurydice puts herself in real danger quite unexpectedly, doesn't she? Mm, sleeping under an apple tree in an orchard and there falls through into fairy world, something she wasn't expecting. And there's quite a lot in medieval stories about the dangers of falling asleep under trees, particularly at midday, because it's a time where unexpectedly you'd think it would be at night that you'd lay yourself open to the predatory supernatural, but the noonday can be just as dangerous. Right, yeah, it seems to be those moments or very specific points that there's a a connection between one world and the other. And and the the apple tree's significance, I love this, that it's a it's an orchard tree, it's a grafted tree. So you've got a fancy rootstock uh, spliced onto a an indigenous natural rootstock and it's that point of graft of human intervention that, that is the gateway into another world. Yeah, so it's not quite nature and it's not quite culture. It's something that's in between, something that's kind of liminal there, isn't it? And so poor Orfeo finds his wife is snatched away by the king of the fairies and he has to work to get her back. Mm. And to deal with fairies, there's very clear rules and expectations and they have things that they want to get out of it and you have to behave in very particular ways and then you can be rewarded, but it doesn't always work out as you hope and expect. It's a, In one way, there's lots of rules, but then there's also a lot of uh, vagueness to it as well, it seems. Yeah, so it's quite often about exchange, but it's also very important to keep your promises. And that turns out to be kind of key, doesn't it, when Orfeo finds his way finally into fairyland and sees his wife again and sees the the reveling and the music and the feasting and the song that's going on. And he can, of course, contribute by playing his harp. Mm, there's honour. There's certainly honour in behaviour and honour in skills. It's, and, and it seems people trade in those virtues rather than 
uh, any any showing off or any deception or any trying to pull one over on each other. There's no competition in that way. It's about validity and uh, and openness and, and virtue. Yeah, respect, I think, is really key there, isn't it? And so Orfeo plays his harp most beautifully because, of course, he's the most skilled harper there is. And the king is keen to offer him any reward that he would care to choose. Mm. And in this instance, he chooses his wife and takes her home. But there's other stories where rewards are given in terms of gold or riches and they can sometimes have very different outcomes. We do get some stories, though, don't we, about the fiddler who goes into the trowel mound, the trouser, a kind of Orkney version of the fairies. And while he's there playing for them, he learns some trowey tunes. And that's his reward for what he does there, to take away, when he comes back into the world, this music of unearthly beauty. That's it. So it's it's, it's not just the tune, it's the way of playing and the, the spell that it casts on other people when they hear this music then, uh, that the player has a, a, a magical skill that they've, they've inherited and been given uh, from their interactions with fairies. Yeah, but in this story, Orfeo already has that skill and he can just kind of parlay it into getting back what really matters to him, which is his wife. And in the medieval version of the romance, the king of the fairies isn't keen to hand Eurydice back because he looks at Orfeo, who's been in the wilderness for years and has a great shaggy beard and looks very unkempt. He doesn't recognise him. He says, no, you and she are not fit for each other because you're ugly and foul and black and lean and she's very beautiful. And Orfeo says, but you promised. And the king must keep his word. And the king of the fairies says, yeah, fair enough. And that promise-keeping turns out to be really key too. So the story of Sir Orfeo ended quite happily for all concerned and he gets his wife back again. But not all of the stories of interactions between humans and fairies end in quite such a positive way. Here's Brian McMahon reading us the story of November Eve, a tale that comes from Ireland. November Eve it is esteemed a very wrong thing among the islanders of Inissark to be about on November Eve, minding any business, for the fairies have their flitting then, and do not like to be seen or watched, and all the spirits come to meet them and help them. But mortal people should keep at home, or they will suffer for it, and the souls of the dead have power over all things on that one night of the year and they hold a festival with the fairies, and drink red wine from the fairy cups, and dance to fairy music till the moon goes down. There was a man of the village who stayed out late one November eve fishing, and never thought of the fairies until he saw a great number of dancing lights, and a crowd of people hurrying past with baskets and bags, and all laughing and singing, and making merry as they went along. "'You're a merry set,' he said." Where are you all going to? We are going to the fair, said a little old man with a cocked hat and a gold band round it. Come with us, Hugh King, and you will have the finest food and the finest drink you ever set eyes upon. And just carry this basket for me, said a little red-haired woman. So Hugh took it and went with them till they came to the fair, which was filled with a crowd of people he had never seen on the island in all his days and they danced and laughed and drank red wine from little cups, 
and there were pipers, and harpers, and little cobblers mending shoes, and all the most beautiful things in the world to eat and drink, just as if they were in a king's palace. But the basket was very heavy, and Hugh longed to drop it, that he might go and chance with the little beauty with long yellow hair that was laughing up close to his face. Well, here, put down the basket, said the red-haired woman, for you are quite tired, I see. And she took it, and opened the cover, and out came a little old man, the ugliest, most misshapen little imp that could be imagined. Ah, thank you, Hugh, said the imp quite politely. You have carried me nicely, for I am weak on the limbs. Indeed, I have nothing to speak of in the way of legs. But I'll pay you well, my fine fellow. Hold out your two hands. And the little imp poured down gold and gold and gold into them, bright golden guineas. Now go, said he, and drink my health and make yourself quite pleasant, and don't be afraid of anything you see and hear. So they all left him, except the man with the cocked hat and fine red sash round his waist. Wait here now a bit, says he. For Finvara the king is coming, and his wife to see the fair. As he spoke, the sound of a horn was heard, and up drove a coach and four white horses, and out of it stepped a grand, grave gentleman, all in black, and a beautiful lady with a silver veil over her face. Here is Finvara himself and the queen, said the little old man. But Hugh was ready to die of fright when Finvara asked, what brought this man here? And the king frowned, and looked so black that Hugh nearly fell to the ground with fear. Then they all laughed, and laughed so loud that everything seemed shaking and tumbling down from their laughter. And the dancers came up, and they all danced round Hugh and tried to take his hands to make him dance with them. Do you know who these people are, and the men and women who are dancing round you? asked the old man. Look well, have you ever seen them before? And when Hugh looked, he saw a girl that had died the year before, then another and another of his friends that he knew had died long ago, and then he saw that all the dancers, men, women and girls, were the dead in their long white shrouds. And he tried to escape from them, but could not, for they coiled round him, and danced and laughed, and seized his arms, and tried to draw him into the dance, and their laugh seemed to pierce through his brain and kill him. And he fell down before them there, like one faint from sleep, and knew no more till he found himself next morning lying within the old stone circle by the fairy wrath on the hill. Still, it was all true that he had been with the fairies. No one could deny it, for his arms were all black with the touch of the hands of the dead, the time they had tried to draw him into the dance. But not one bit of all the red gold which the little imp had given him could he find in his pocket, not one single gold of peace. It was all gone, forevermore. And Hugh went sadly to his home, for now he knew that the spirits had mocked him and punished him because he troubled their revels on November Eve, that one night of all the year when the dead 
can leave their graves and dance in the moonlight on the hill, and the mortals should stay at home and never dare to look on them. So, Hugh King didn't have such a great time with the fairies. No, and I feel quite sorry for him there because there weren't very clear rules that he had to obey. They just kept asking him to do things and then it seemed he'd done it wrong. So uh, much as honour and truth and everything is very valuable, um, I feel quite sorry for him. <laughs> yes, well, he, was, he looked like he was just trying to do them a good turn, didn't he? That he was out. Now, maybe he shouldn't have been out on November Eve. He shouldn't have been out that a, late. It's a dangerous time. It's a significant night, isn't it? So it's it's around All Saints Day, All Souls Day. It's when uh, there is that liminal opening again between the world of the living and the world of the dead. Yes, he maybe he should have known better. But then, you know, a band of, of people, mysterious people, because there were dancing lights before they appeared, ask him to help and carry the basket to the fair and he helps out and he, he does them a good turn. But there are points where maybe he should have kind of thought a bit harder about what was happening. But he's just constantly surprised by what develops. Mm, and they keep asking him to do things. So are you supposed to reject a fairy? If, if they ask you to carry a bag and you don't, you would imagine something bad would happen. Or if they invite you to stay and meet the king, then presumably you would stay and meet the king and not, not cause offence. So I, yeah, I'm a bit you think it's a great honour, really, to meet the king. But perhaps that's the point at which he really has overstayed his welcome because the as quite often happens in these stories, the king or the leader of the, the magical group hasn't necessarily been consulted about having a human present and they start to look around rather sharply and say, who let this interloper in? So maybe he should have cut and run with the gold mm. a bit earlier in the story. But gold, I, I'm not sure of any instances where fairy gold has lasted in the real world. So I'd always be suspicious if fairies gave me gold as, as material reward. It's like for personal wealth gain rather than um, honour. We do have occasional stories, as we'll hear in a later podcast, where fairy gold does actually last in the real world, or at least it's gold which is usable in the human world. But quite often, particularly if there's some kind of moral fault, then the fairy gold will just kind of crumble into nothing in daylight. And one such story is the, the tale of the miser of Gump St Just down in Cornwall, who hears that the fairies go dancing on this particular kind of um, hill, and thinks that he can go down there and get some of the fairy gold, steal some of the fairy gold. But rather as in this tale, that ends badly with him just being beaten up basically by the fairies and being given some fairy gold, which again crumbles into dust the next day. Mm. Well, at least nothing terrible happens to our chap in November Eve. He's, he just comes away with nothing. He doesn't uh, suffer in in the human world afterwards. Yes, and it's also true that he didn't see... He saw some acquaintances that he knew among the dead, but he didn't see anybody who was terribly, terribly close to him who he couldn't get back. So at least there was that kind of comfort there. Here's Brian again. This is the tale of Ocean, son of the great hero Finn, leader of the outlaw band the Fianna. Ocean rode away with Neve of the Fair Hair to the land of youth, a term for the other world. At last, after what seemed to Ocean a sojourn of three weeks in the land of youth, he was satisfied with delights of every kind and longed to visit his native land again and to see his old comrades. 
He promised to return when he had done so, and Neve gave him the white fairy steed that had borne him across the sea to fairyland, but charged him that when he had reached the land of Erin again, he must never alight from its back, nor touch the soil of the earthly world with his foot, or the way of return to the land of youth would be barred to him forever. Ocean then set forth and once more crossed the mystic ocean, finding himself at last on the western shores of Ireland. Here he made at once for the hill of Allen, where the fortress of Finn was wont to be, but marvelled as he traversed the woods that he met no sign of the Fian hunters and at the small size of the folk whom he saw tilling the ground. At length, coming from the forest path into the great clearing where the hill of Allen was wont to rise broad and green, with its rampart enclosing many white-walled dwellings and the great hall towering high in the midst, he saw but grassy bounds overgrown with rank weeds and wind-bushes, and among them pastured a peasant's cows. Then a strange horror fell upon him, and he thought some enchantment from the land of fairy held his eyes and mocked him with false visions. He threw his arms abroad and shouted the names of Finn and Oscar, but none replied, and he thought that perchance the hounds might hear him, so he cried upon Bran and Skolorn, and strained his ears if they might catch the faintest rustle or whisper of the world from the sight of which his eyes were holden. But he heard only the sighing of the wind in the winds. Then he rode in terror from that place, setting his face toward the eastern sea, for he meant to traverse Ireland from side to side and end to end in search of some escape from his enchantment. After a while, Ocean gets off his horse to help some people to roll a huge boulder out of the way, and he is suddenly transformed into a man stricken with extreme old age, white-bearded and withered, who stretched out groping hands and moaned with feeble and bitter cries. The people lifted him up and asked who he was and what had befallen him. Ocean said, I was Ocean, the son of Finn, and I pray ye tell me where he dwells, for his fort on the hill of Allen is now a desolation, and I have neither seen him nor heard his hunting horn from the western to the eastern sea. Then the men gazed strangely on each other and on Ocean, and asked, of what fin do you speak, for there are many of that name in Ireland? Ocean said, Surely of Finn McCool McTrenmer, captain of the Fianna of Ireland. Then the overseer said, You are daft, old man. We know that Finn, son of Cool, and all his generation have been dead these three hundred years. But now Patrick has come into Ireland, and has preached to us the one God and Christ his Son, by whose might these old days and ways are done away with. And Finn and his Fianna, with their feasting and hunting and songs of war and of love, have no such reverence among us as the monks and virgins of Holy Patrick, and the psalms and prayers that go up daily to cleanse us from sin and to save us from the fire of judgment. So they brought him to Patrick, who treated him gently and hospitably, and to Patrick he told the story of all that had befallen him. 
But Patrick bade his scribes write all carefully down that the memory of the heroes whom Ocean had known and of the joyous and free life they had led in the woods and glens and wild places of Erin should never be forgotten among men. But Ocean refused to take baptism from Patrick, preferring to be with his father and kinsmen. And very soon he died. So for Oshin, the fact that time passed really differently in Fairyland was something that he just didn't know to take into account. Mm. And that comes up in lots of different stories of people being obsessed with games of cards and getting lost in, in, in playing with the uh, fairy folk or the devil and then you turn around and you, you realise that everything you've loved is gone. Well, I think it's sort of indicative that Fairyland is not just a different space but it offered, it operates under these different kinds of time constraints. And that being taken out of your normal life to do something that's very pleasurable and you think, uh, probably naturally, I wish this could last forever. But actually, you don't really want it to last forever because when the pleasure stops, when the fun stops and you think, oh, no, I want to go back home, I want to see the people I care about, You've lost them. Mm. I suppose it's the having an assumption that something's happening in a world that you're familiar with, and that's not the case. So you're you're absorbed with what's happening in front of you, and when you turn around and expect something to still be there, it's not. So you you need to maintain connection with the with the real world. Yeah, I think it's easy to get caught up in, and that maybe there's a kind of moral lesson here about pleasure because nobody gets caught up in fairyland having a horrible time because they would try and escape much earlier. But it's being with the beautiful fairy mistress, it's feasting on the fairy fruits. It's all very sensual and all very kind of self-centred. And then you forget about both the people you love and the responsibilities that you mm. have. Are there stories the other way around where somebody feels that they've been in fairy world for 20 years and then return home and it's the next day? Yeah, you do get some stories like that. Quite often some of those fiddler stories, they feel as if they've been dancing for a week among the, the fairy folk in the fairy mound or out in the, the forest. And they come back thoroughly exhausted and say to the wife, you know, didn't you miss me? And the wife says, well, you just popped out for five minutes. You know, I hadn't noticed you were gone, really. Mm. So it can, it can stretch and warp and bend in, in different ways. In mysterious ways. It is fascinating what this parallel world is and how it interacts with the world that we're on here, how you access it, how, how time... It's a different place, clearly, but it's also a different time. It's, it's hugely mutable. But the same person, the human, can still seem to travel in between without much significant change to themselves. Yeah, except a different perspective when they come back. So Ashin, in some ways, for the, the Christian interpretation of Ashin's story is that he's lucked out, basically, that he's spent all this time in fairyland and now he gets to save his soul by accepting baptism from St. Patrick, no less, and the Apostle of Ireland. And it's interesting that he elects not to do that, mm. that he he wants his soul to go where that neglected family is, where the kinfolk and the father that he left behind have all gone. And what he knows as well. It's like he's got three brave new worlds going on. He's got his, his world that he grew up in and was familiar with. He has the fairy world that he became familiar with. And then he's landed back in this Christian environment that, again, is a very strange and mystical place to him. I, I find the interaction between Christianity and fairy really fascinating, and this obviously is a really strong story of that, but uh, it crops up quite, 
quite frequently. Yes, and we'll, we'll talk about that in some of the other episodes, I think. And of course, what is interesting again here in this story is Oshin has always the option to turn the horse around and go straight back to fairyland. But now he's seen what he's seen and he realises what he's lost and what he might have gained. It doesn't hold that attraction for him anymore. In some analogues to this story, uh, once the the man who's been taken by the fairies, who's gone willingly with them, realises there's nothing left for him in the human world, he just says, OK, right, back to the fairies it is. Mm, that's it. Choice does come in quite a lot. Uh, we started talking about um, discipline and uh, uh, obeying fairy law and doing what you're told and where that comes into it. But actually, quite often you're given a choice and it... It's about the weight of that decision and, and the implications of those decisions, the human decision that's going to have on you. So much as the fairies are powerful with what they can bestow and what they can give, it's quite dependent on how you behave morally within that and, and you get a chance to be moral. You do yeah, get an opportunity. and what attitude you come with. Mm -hmm. So the attitude that you want something that is of real value from the fairies, not fairy gold or even other kinds of gold. But if you come like Orfeo and you want to get your wife back and you do what that takes. Or some of the other stories, the ones that involve going to the fairies or allowing the fairies to teach you some new skill, as we were talking about earlier, then it can really pay off. Mm. But it does seem the, the fairy palaces, grand as they are, the fairy dances, beautiful and entrancing as they are, the connections with wives, families, home, it's almost a... a a glimpse into another world to ensure that you cement what is valuable to you in the real world. It's an opportunity for you to value your life rather than necessarily just an enticement into something else. Yes, uh, you really learn what really matters. So, an invitation to join the fairy dance may mean you're entrapped for days, weeks or months, or time may pass more slowly, so a night's dancing is only equivalent to a few human minutes. And we've found too that fairy treasure often doesn't last in the light of day, though the more intangible gifts the fairies give, like music for example, can be more durable. If you've enjoyed this podcast, join us in the next one in the series where we'll talk about fairy lovers and fairy wives. And if you happen to be able to come to the Sage Gates Head, there'll be a residency with open rehearsals and actual performances of the artist's new work in progress on April 26th, 27th and 28th, 2019. Goodbye now. Goodbye.